Hi, friends. Thank you for joining us on Food for Thought. Uh, I am so sorry. We've started a little bit late today, and that's because we've had some technical difficulties. I, I had a problem with my computer, and so I'm using my iPhone, and this is the wonders of technology. We're able to use this iPhone for this, and you know, for all of you guys who know how to do this, this is great for you, but it's, for me, it's all a new experience. And of course, we have a really wonderful guest that we have on today. And so I'd like to, instead of doing a food for thought type of thing at the very beginning, I'd like to go just launch into our guest because I think she offers us a very important conversation and uh, one that's uh, powerful. And so uh, our guest today is Hannah Fordis, uh, Fordyce, and she is a writer and advocate with a passion for ending intimate partner violence. She developed House of Faith and Freedom to help equip the local church to prayerfully and effectively deal with abusive situations in their congregation and surrounding community. Hannah has a BA in psychology and a master's in human services uh, forensic behavioral health. In addition, she has uh, experience working with various nonprofits around uh, the area, uh, around the areas of domestic violence, victim services, and volunteer management. And so uh, I'm looking forward to having a conversation with her. And um, Ben, please bring her on. Hi, Hannah, how are you? I'm doing so well. Thanks for having me on. Oh, oh my God! Thank you, and I, 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 I so I, I'm so sorry that I we had this uh, hiccup here at the very beginning, uh, and uh, but you seem so calm uh, through this all, and I feel like I'm just, uh, uh, you know, like a duck that's that's swirling. <laughs> I feel like this is just the world we live in post COVID, right? It's it's that's right. All sorts of technology issues, and also how crazy that we can be connecting from you know states that are across the country. Sure. So, good and bad, right? <laughs> yeah. Where where are you connecting from? Yeah, from Minnesota. So in Minnesota. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I, I loved I visited Minnesota out there and it was just beautiful. It it's, is. It depends on the part of the state. I'm um I'm just south of the Twin Cities area. And so it's a little bit more like farming community down where I am. Um yeah. I'm from northern Minnesota up in Duluth, up on the North Shore, Lake Superior, and it's incredibly beautiful up there oh my god yeah it, and it's cold too isn't it yes very um <laughs> especially duluth like the lake effect really makes a difference you can go a, a 10 15 degree temperature difference depending on if you're up by the lake or up on the hill wow well i i just totally uh i'm glad that you're here and i'm glad that we're connecting uh from different parts of the country we're in rhode island it's uh it was very cold here uh it's it's getting warmer now, uh, and we live right off of uh, the ocean, uh, in Wesley, Rhode Island, and um, and and hopefully one day you'll come and visit us too. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I would, uh, you know, this uh, this topic of partner violence is probably very important for us right at this particular time, especially since uh, there's so much, so many people who've been, you know, in so much close contact with one another, especially during this pandemic uh, situation. You know, when, you know, in prior to the pandemic, um, you know, I'm wondering how the statistics bear out, but prior to the pandemic, people had 
other things to engage their life uh, with. And so they would go off to work, they'd go to their work uh, atmosphere, they'd then go into other social uh, situations, and then they'd come back home and then be with their loved ones. And so there was probably a less time, less less contact time at home as uh, as compared to during the pandemic when we're all stuck together filled with anxiety filled with frustrations and all of the problems that that come uh, come about that uh, come with that and so i'm wondering has there been an increase in partner violence during this pandemic period yeah there's absolutely been an uptick in the number of calls that crisis lines have been getting around um, domestic violence. There's also been a pretty pronounced uptick around child abuse and neglect because kids aren't in school or have on and off not been in school. Um, something else that really tends to play into domestic violence incidents, um, especially physical violence, are drugs and alcohol use. And the, the stress of the pandemic, we saw a really high increase in people's usage of drugs and alcohol. And so that, you know, rolls right into somebody having a, a losing their temper or moving into possibly a physically violent event. So everything from stress to spending more time at home to loss of jobs to increase of, you know, drug and alcohol use have kind of played into that being a very um, pronounced issue in the last two years. Yeah, no, I could imagine, I, you know, we... Um... You know the 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 fear and the, I mean the anxiety and the stress that we're under, and then uh, having no pressure release uh, opportunities. You know, so um, do you see that mostly in in, in uh, violence that's directed towards female, or is it uh, both male female type of thing? I mean, uh, is that domestic abuse? Is that is that um, I believe he froze. Uh, hello, hello. You froze. He he went out and came back. So anyway, okay. he was trying to ask a question. Hi everybody, I'm Ben. You know me. Um, so he was trying to ask a question. If you want to just uh, try to answer that. Sure, I can answer it. Yep. So he was asking whether it's more um, common for women to be the victims, basically, of domestic violence, which I think historically we do see that women are often the victims, especially of physical violence, because there's such a power differential usually in the size of men versus women. But domestic violence is really interesting because it really does kind of cross over every gender, every religion, every race or ethnicity and socioeconomic status. It doesn't necessarily like favor one thing over the other. So if we're looking statistically um, around physical abuse um, and stalking and sexual assault, if we're taking those three things, one in three women will experience that from an intimate partner during their lifetime. For men, it's one in four. So they're really not that far behind. Um, and that may be like men who have other male partners, or it could be their female partner. Um, also, men are kind of underreported typically because there's a stigma around domestic violence that tends to prevent men from coming forward and reporting. And that's something that we've really been working on in the last few years to to try to equalize or normalize. But 
Um, but yeah, I would say I would say women you typically see more often, especially for physical abuse. For psychological, there's actually no difference at all. Um, it's 50% of both women and men have experienced some form of psychological abuse at the hands of an intimate partner in their lifetime. Mm. Wow. And and the other thing about domestic violence, and, and you might have hinted at it, and I just wanted to clarify, would uh, violence among um, um, uh, from from parents to children or uh, with children in the household, would that be considered domestic violence also? Yeah, so I often use the term intimate partner violence because that sort of narrows it down to we're looking at either two adults or you know two teenagers, people who are of relative similar age that are engaged in some form of a romantic relationship. The term domestic abuse can be a little bit broader. It's anyone who's in the household. So that can include children. Um, within a legal standpoint, they do sometimes shift around just depending on what state you're in um, because child abuse and neglect will be treated under a different um, legal category than domestic abuse against an intimate partner would be. Sure, and uh, and I would also assume that, that, uh, that elder abuse also would be considered a part of domestic violence. Yeah, it would be. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, it's been a tough time. I, I, uh, I I know like there was a, there was a YouTube video uh, about uh, two years ago when this whole pandemic started. Actually, it was a Facebook video, um, and you know it showed this uh, this this woman and she's praying and she's praying fervently and she's holding her and she's good. Good Lord, help me, help me, Lord, because I you know I feel so angry. I feel so frustrated because I I have to be a teacher, a social worker. I have to be uh, a, the cafeteria lady, and I have to do my own job, and then raise my kids, and and be my uh, a, a wife, and all of these things. And she's listing off these things, and and uh, and and I was. You know, it was a funny video, right? Uh, because she was, it was tongue in cheek. But then, but then it it spoke to the truth of the moment, which was that it is it has been hard for parents and for for spouses uh, and for people in general uh, during this pandemic period. And so, uh, you know, it's just just an acknowledgement of of the, the that that challenge that we have as a society. Um, but how did you get into this intimate partner violence in particular? Yeah, um, as you know, we talked uh, uh, earlier about kind of how I got into this work, but um, it really started with, I grew up in a family where both my parents were in ministry. My dad was um, a pastor and my mom was in Christian radio. And um, a, a woman who had just recently left a very violent relationship and um, didn't have somewhere to go, didn't have somebody to gain support from, uh, which is pretty common in domestic violence situations because one of the tactics abusers tend to use is isolation. So anyway, she had left this relationship with her kids and had heard my mom on the radio and um, sought out our church as somewhere to find support. So she came up on a random Sunday and, and found my mom and told her story to her. And um, she became this very integrated part of our family life and um, just this really incredible woman. But we walked through years and years of court processes and um, termination of parental rights and her divorce case. And it was just very clear how long and challenging the, the path out of violence really is. 
and the amount of support that you need in order to walk into sort of a, a, a brighter future. So our church really walked alongside of her, which was beautiful to see. And also, you know, we kind of stumbled our way through it because we hadn't dealt with that previously. Meanwhile, um, this was my early college years. I was studying psychology and decided to do my internship in legal advocacy for domestic abuse victims. Um, and then that just really kicked off my passion for this area. So I, I continued forward in sort of a victim services pathway professionally. Um, and over time, it just I just kept hearing from victims, from survivors, that their faith communities had let them down in some way, whether that was encouraging them to do marriage counseling or not believing them or minimizing their abuse or siding with their abuser. Um, and it was just killing me because I love the church so deeply. And because as God's people, we're called to help the oppressed, the vulnerable, the victim, right? And we have this opportunity to provide kind of the long-term support that a, a victim or survivor really needs to move forward. And so um, I was training local community members for to run a 24-hour crisis line and do legal advocacy. And I just thought, why can't I bring this same practical training into the local church so that they have the same tools to be able to help victims? I, I think this is a powerful, and how did you, so um, did you work first with your church that you went to, or uh, or did you just offer it, and then other pastors just took the, uh, took the, took the opportunity to, to start programs? Yeah, so the first way I started actually was, was by writing a book. I guess you could say I was a little bit resistant to God's pushing me in this direction. Um, so I just set like decided in my my nine to five job to take 10, 15 minutes each day and start um, writing down some of these principles, right, that I thought were really relevant that the church would need to know. And over time, that sort of built itself into a manuscript that that now is my book, Ready Refuge. Um, and eventually it just became uh, a tipping point of deciding is this going to be something that I sort of casually put out or am I really going to dedicate the time and energy that's necessary for this to be something that works and and that really can be pushed out to various types of churches and various denominations. Um, so right before COVID, actually, I took the leap of faith and quit my job and and just pursued running House of Faith and Freedom. So from that point, um, I have trained a few churches in my hometown of Duluth, but um yeah, I built the the book, released that as sort of the introductory guide to what I'm calling Christ-centered advocacy. And then I have three curriculums that go a little bit more in depth into some of the subjects that I talk about in the introductory guide. Um, so those are really easy and accessible. You can buy them online and run through them with your church on your own. Um, and then I also do in-person training for churches that would prefer to have something that's you know, like a one-day seminar to train their leadership teams. Mm. And so what has the response been? Pretty good. It's a little bit challenging to um, to engage in a conversation that's not particularly uplifting <laughs> or popular. Um, you know, abuse is difficult. And when you really start to engage in this conversation um, in your church, people are going to come forward. And that's messy, 
you know, um, the effects of abuse are really long running and the church is in kind of a unique position because often you're going to have the abuser and the victim both attending. Um, so then you have to figure out how to navigate that. You know, what does it look like to hold um, the perpetrator accountable? What does it look like to walk the victim through the process of, of um, healing and, and forgiveness and safety? And I think a lot of churches are hesitant about really starting to engage in this because, because it is going to be messy, because it is going to be a serious dedication of time and energy. Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting. Uh, one of the churches that I served, I'm the church that I'm serving right now, Christ Episcopal Church in, in Westerly, Rhode Island is a wonderful church and it's got, um, you know, a, a great, great reach in terms of ministry. Uh, but one of my previous services, I'm usually considered to be an after pastor. I come in after um, a situation has occurred in the congregation and I help rebuild trust and rebuild uh, the community. And uh, one of the uh, places I served was, uh, was a church that uh, the rector, the former priest, uh, actually was arrested for domestic abuse. Uh, after the 10 o'clock service, I mean, he was put into uh, into the squad's ca squad car right after the service uh, and in handcuffs, and um, and then the effects of that was was traumatic for that congregation. I mean, um, you know, we had a really interesting. The police department was very much involved with the co uh, congregation before. We had people who were who were who were police officers, and uh, after that specific incident. You know, um, you know, this there was a real divide in the congregation and even among the police officers. And so we lost a lot of people, but then we started to regain that um, that trust again. Uh, and part of it, it was just truth telling, you know, mm -hmm. being able to to be authentic and be open and, and say this is what happened. And um, and, you know, it's you know, we live in a broken world. And uh, without br blame shifting, you know, it, it shifting onto the victim, especially. You know. Yeah. And I think it's interesting because um, domestic violence sort of by nature is this very hidden sin, right? It's something that happens often within the confines of the home. Um, and, and people who um, tend to abuse or have abusive behaviors, um, they're really good at manipulating a situation so that they're in control. That's kind of this the the root of abuse is power and control, right? And so it's not often obvious. Like abusers aren't people who are gonna, you know, walk out and you can pick them out of a crowd very often. They're usually gonna be someone who's like, you know, Joe Smith that lives down the street that you've known forever that's super nice. And so I think it's without moving into fear-mongering, right? It's it's just having a very wise um, and and careful perception, right? Like recognizing that your church does have this issue, whether you realize it or not, whether you acknowledge it or not, it's going on just statistically, right? And so if we can be open and upfront and address these issues before it, you know, turns into the priest getting arrested after the 10 a.m. service, like it... <laughs> It already pre-builds some of that trust into the church, into the congregation, right? It's part of creating a safe and and truthful environment 
um, both for victims, but also to say to, to perpetrators, you know, we don't tolerate this here. You know, this is something that we talk about openly. It's something that we're trained to deal with. And, and when it happens, then dealing with that in hopefully a way that minimizes the amount of, of damage that's left in, in the wake of it. Yeah, no. And so if you were, a, uh, if you were, yeah, so uh, my congregation hasn't had any type of conversation about this type of thing in my experience, which I've been here for about seven years. To open a conversation about this, what would you, how would you do this? It's so that it would be authentic, not just simply ticking the, ticking a, 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 you know, crossing it off the list almost, but, but really engaging and so that people would uh, have a good uh, understanding, a deeper understanding. Yeah, absolutely. I, it is challenging because I think for a lot of churches, the motivation for engaging in the conversation of abuse can be um, legal, right? They kind of want to cover their, their legal bases in case something ever were to happen. And that certainly is a, a legitimate concern. You know, you should you should have policies in place that are going to help guide you through some of these processes. But we really have to engage with the heart of God first, right? We have to recognize that God is absolutely against oppression in all of its forms, that he's against violence in all of its forms. And that when we're looking within a marriage system, especially marriage is this really beautiful metaphor that God uses for um, his relationship with us or with the church. And when abuse is occurring when there's this lording of power or control over somebody else, it really um, like twists, right? This metaphor of God's love. It's, it's like an offensive twisting of his own character. So we have to get to that root and realize this isn't something that um, we can take a casual or neutral stance on. And it's not something that we can afford to ignore or allow to be silenced. And by doing that, we're really just helping perpetuate that system, right? We're just enabling someone who's who's silently perpetrating violence. So I would say start by speaking in the pulpit about it, right? Like I could count on one hand the number of times I've ever heard abuse brought up in a sermon or um, or in in church. So I would say start there because it starts with the heart of God. And and then after that, move into some of the things that maybe land more on that practical side, like getting training for your leadership teams or um, starting to engage with some of the local advocacy agencies in your area that deal with this issue every single day and just saying, we're here, we care, we want to learn, we want to listen. You know, we want to be a safe place for victims to come. We're a community that they're, you know, they're welcome in. Yeah. No, and 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 I think that's a really important thing. I mean, a safe place for for victims to come, also a safe place for people to find transformation and hope, so that they would, uh, you know, be able to um, manage their emotional states. You know, so even the perpetrator, you know, um, to kind of manage this so that they could find deep connection with God. I think. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's also an interesting, I mean, this could lead us down a deep rabbit trail, but yeah, it's interesting because the church does have a unique role it can play in sort of the recovery, repentance, and, and restoration of abusers. 
Um, it's always something to be careful about because I think there's a real tendency to maybe misconstrue uh, being sorry you got caught as true repentance. Yeah. So that is learning to understand and read that repentance is is going to bear a fruit, right? It's going to bear life change. So when we see that record of change, that's that's when we really know there's been a shift of of repentance. But um, something that I've been thinking a lot about lately is how as I mentioned earlier, abuse is really rooted in the need for power and control. It's, that's the very seed of it. And repentance in, in the Christian environment is so powerful when you think of an abuser because they have to literally submit that power. They have to submit all of their control to God, right? To his way of doing things, to his way of being, to his perspective. And that undermines the very root of the thing. So yeah. when you truly can have someone who who begins to understand that, you're opening the pathway towards hopefully sustainable life change through, you know, ongoing accountability and treatment. But yeah, I mean, uh, I look at the word, uh, you know, repentance, and it comes from the Greek word metanoia, which means to turn around a turning. So it's kind of like you're moving in one direction. And then you know, you're forced, you're, I mean, out of your will, you're, you're moving in one direction, but you turn around and you submit, you release, you, you let go of your control and allow God to lead you uh, to the other way. And uh, yeah, that's, and it takes a lot of humility uh, to do that. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, the, the, the caution I would always think is that, you know, uh, the the other tendency that we have in the church for forgiveness, you know, and and wanting that to get done uh, quickly, you know, uh, you know, but forgiveness uh, in a way. I mean, I, I've I've had I've had situations where, well, not personally, but I, when I was growing up, uh, you know, my father was a pastor, and there was this tendency even within the church to just gloss over, mm -hmm. uh, gloss over the, the anger, the frustration, the physical violence mm -hmm. sometimes in order to just keep everything outwardly harmonious. Mm -hmm. But inwardly it was, it was uh, it, so it's a cautious kind of uh, place that the, the church has to walk. And I think too, the church, yeah, the church has a lot of interesting potential pitfalls, right? If we don't, take the time to really pray and wrestle with God sort of through some of these issues. There are a lot of areas where we could take maybe the easy interpretation of the way out. So um, when we're, we're speaking about the difference between remorse and repentance, right? I think it's very easy to think about the apostle Paul on the road to Damascus, having this incredible encounter that changed his direction instantaneously, right? If we're looking at repentance as a shift of direction, like for Paul, it was it was it was a 180. He he literally turned around and went the other way. But that's a very rare degree of um, of change, right? Or a, of repentance in such an instantaneous and quick way. Um, so I think we have to be cautious about realizing that true repentance is going to be um, taking ownership and dealing with consequences and allowing that accountability to really flood into your life. And having respect also for the victim and and what is safest and and best for them, right? Regaining that trust in a really slow moving type of way, like they get to set the pace. Um, on the 
flip side, uh, you know, on the victim side with forgiveness, we often um, equate forgiveness with reconciliation. Mm. And I think that can be really dangerous too. Um, forgiveness being this process that God calls us to, right? To to release our desire for retribution or for um, revenge, um, and and reconciliation being the bringing back together of two things, right? That to the state they should be in or were originally in. And sometimes reconciliation may not be able to happen on this side of heaven, you know, in an abusive situation for safety reasons or because of a certain degree of damage that's been done to that relationship. Um, whereas forgiveness is something that's going to be happening on the victim side over time as a process, you know, as they continue to let go over and over again of, of the, I don't know, the, the pain that exists there because of the abuse they've suffered under a spouse or a dating partner or someone else in their household. Um, so I think when we, um, when we as the church really sit down to deal with this issue, we have to get into some of those nuances, right? We can't make it so clean and simple as like, oh, well, this person said they were sorry, so you should forgive them, and then the two of you should be reconciled. Right. It's it's not like a perfect, simple equation like that. Right. Um, it took a long time usually for the relationship to devolve to the point that it did, and it's going to take a really long time for it to be restored if that's even possible on this you yeah. know, on this side of heaven. So I love the way when, when you framed uh, the conversation around forgiveness being on the timetable of the victim, uh, the, uh, or the timetable of the per person that has been offended, you know, and, and so forgiveness is, and, and, and in many ways of, uh, uh, in ways that I look at it is, is being free from be, finding freedom from the, the actual offense you know, so the offense if it's if it's based on anger then you re you want to find a way to to release that anger to be free of that anger that, so that it doesn't force you in a particular way and so um yeah i love that i love that conversation it's based on the 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 offended uh or the person who has been offended their 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 vantage point and not really well okay it's you know it's five five minutes it just happened i said i'm sorry you know, you should be, you know, you should be a Christian person and just forgive me, you know, and, and that isn't really, and that also is, you know, even if you, if, if a person requires that, there's like lack of awareness. Absolutely. You know, you know I had a, an interesting experience with this actually of um, uh, a woman who, there was an ongoing criminal case. She had a a protection order, a civil protection order that was in place. And um, the her husband started attending a different local church, um, did a really convincing job of, of showing that he'd accepted Christ and um and was and was I'm repentant in the sense of like I I am in this moment telling you that I am repentant, right? There was no proven change over time. Um and that um pastor ended up calling up the pastor of the church that this woman was going to and saying that she needed to drop the protection order and reconcile with him because he was, he was, he was sorry. And, um, you know, thank God the pastor of the church that she was attending realized, you know, this is third party contact that's in violation of the protection order that's here. So, you know, if you call again, I'm going to have to call 911. But it was interesting because I don't think that the pastor of the church he was attending again, was, was malintentioned. He had, he had good intentions, 
they were naive, perhaps, right? And they were very misinformed when it came to um, recognizing the severity of the case, the natural consequences, which were, you know, the legal separation between the two people. And, um, and And that's just a perfect example, kind of a pitfall, right? Of that someone could fall into with the church very simply if it's not a subject that you're familiar with. And yeah. if you haven't taken the time to understand also, you know, some of the the interesting legal ramifications that can be involved in cases like this. Right. And the nuances. I mean, uh, and actually, you know, with the whole idea about repentance is meaning a changed life, a different way of being. And so even in that situation, I mean, you know, uh, that person, even if the protection order was taken off, the 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 same contributing elements to the original, you know, situation would still be there, you know? Absolutely. And the entitlement of thinking, like, I said I was sorry, right? So I get to avoid the consequences of my actions. And that's, um, you know, I I had a different victim at one time. Um, She was actually very pivotal in me starting House of Faith and Freedom. She was the the first victim I'd ever talked to, it was during my first internship in legal advocacy. She was looking to get a protection order dropped and she had been severely physically um, beaten by her husband. She'd been in the ICU um, for about a week afterwards. So she came um, to my office to go through a safety plan that the judge was asking for to even consider dropping this protection order. And when I asked her, you know, why are you wanting to drop the protection order? Why do you want to go back? And her answer was because God would want me to reconcile with my husband. Mm-hmm. And I was so floored by that answer at the time. Um, like it was super pivotal for me because someone told her that God cared more about the construct of her marriage looking like it was intact than he cared about her being safe. Like this man had literally tried to murder her you know, just weeks before. And oh, where was I going? I don't know why I started down this tangent, but. Um, no, it's a very good tangent because what it is, is it, it shows, it shows how, how wrong thinking we can be. And I was saying to her, this is where I was going. I was talking about boundaries, right? Because when she said that it was difficult, I was in a secular setting, so I couldn't really get into, you know, the nature of God with her. Um, but I just said, you know, I think God also believes in boundaries and, you know, your husband crossed a pretty big line and the natural consequence of that, the natural boundary for that is this protection order. Yeah. You know, and, and I think that's helpful for people to, to begin to think of as, as consequences and boundaries. And that's something we see all throughout scripture is often God does not, Um, save people from the consequences of their actions. You know, he allows those things to play out. And ultimately God is, you know, we hold these, these dichotomous things. God is a God of justice and a God of mercy, you know, and how do we as the church really find a way to live in the tension of that um, without leaning overly to one side or the other, where we forsake mercy or where we forsake justice. Um, And we kind of have to wrestle with what does it look like to be to be a body of believers that pursue both, you know, that don't, um, yeah, that don't don't lean heavily, too heavily to one side or the other. You know, it's interesting. Um, 
I'm re- I was re- uh, reflecting on one of the uh, uh, reading uh, this week for it's this, uh, it's the gospel lesson that uh, it, that has Jesus' story of the prodigal son, right? And one insight that came to me this time when I was reading it is, you know, I've, I'm always used to, you, we all know the story of the prodigal son, the father, there's a father, there's two sons, one son says, hey, look, you know, dad, I want to have, I want to live my life free and all of these things. And uh, I want you to divide up uh, my, your, your property and give me my share now. And then he does, God and the father does, and the, and the young man goes off and ends up wasting it all and 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 doing all sorts of stuff that were that he wouldn't do at home and then and then he's destitute and comes back and the father uh is waiting for him to come back and with open arms and so i won't go into the other parts of the story but this idea is that we 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 um we think of god as the merciful god who waits for us uh, to come back home, so that's a beautiful image, and it is the image that God, that I think Jesus wants us to remember. But then there's also this other part of the story that I've I, I is, and that part of the story is that here was the young man in the household of his father, and he wanted to do things in a particular way, and and I am sure that the father said, "No, you can't do this. You can't spend uh, money in my household." this way wasting it no you can't i love you son but you just can't there's in this whole idea about boundaries you know what you can do what you should do and then and it and it pained the father to leave that the son is leaving but if you want to live in in that relationship that's good and harmonious and hopeful and joyful um there are boundaries that you have to follow yeah, I've actually never thought about the story that way. <laughs> but I, I, that's incredibly insightful because it's true, right? You look at the prodigal son choosing to take his inheritance and leave. And, you know, I'm sure if he could have continued to sort of mooch off of his father while he was living in his house for free, he probably would have. Yeah. You know? It is very interesting. Like And so and so the and so the correction is that that the that the son realizes his mistake comes back and then is able to live within those boundaries mm-hmm. so that he could have a joyful life and a hopeful life which is what the father wants for his son you know which is what and so this idea about even you know like you know a a, a woman and a husband when they enter into a marriage relationship it's the their boundaries there there mm-hmm. there there are things that 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 uh, if God is present in that marriage, right, and we believe it is, right, then then they have to be they have to respect those boundaries for each other. Absolutely, I mean that's why we call it, you know, entering into a covenant. There's something that's necessary from both sides in that in that give, right? You know, Hannah, you're just an insightful lady. I um, I really appreciate this conversation, and, and I'm sorry that that we started off a little bit, um, you know, like uh, it, with the technical difficulties. But I've enjoyed it. And uh, one thing that I, you know, that I hope, uh, and I just want to know, this is the last question: How do you sustain your faith in the midst of this type of hard work? I know, I know, when I'm in in pastor mode, it, it's hard for me sometimes, 
uh, and you're and you're dealing with uh, a range of things that are very difficult. How do you keep the faith? How do you keep yourself nurtured? Yeah, uh, it is challenging because you are constantly seeing um, the brokenness, right? You're always seeing the brokenness of the world. You're seeing people be hurt and you're also seeing people who are doing the hurting. And um, I mean, I think it's just continually coming to the feet of the cross, right? The really beautiful thing about Christianity is, is we have this savior who chose to keep the nail holes in his hands. No, he chose to keep this scar of his trauma, of his mistreatment, of his abuse. And, and that's so powerful to know that you can come to the feet of someone who knew incredible injustice and, and lay these grievances, these hurts at his feet. And, and he, and he carries them for us. You know, it's like wild that the God of the universe would have subjected himself to that kind of a treatment. And, um, and so I think just continually every morning laying these stories of um, brokenness at, at Christ's feet and trusting that he's going to carry them and sustain them and bring healing. And that someday, you know, in that, in that beautiful, um, perfect kingdom of God, when it's realized in its, its fullness, um, all of this is going to be washed away. And it makes it that much sweeter, right? That idea of heaven, that... Um, that perfection because we see how broken it is now. And, and so, yeah, I think, I think that, I think just submitting it to Christ over and over and over again and knowing that he understands it and he can hold it even when I feel like I can't. And, and you know, one of the things that did, did you just remind me is that the understanding that you're part of that process, that you're a part of it by what you're doing, you're helping that process to, to that, to that vision of paradise for all of us somehow. And so, uh, Hannah, God bless you. Um, you know, God protect you and your spirit. It, uh, it's a wonderful one. And I know that you're touching many people's lives. Thank you. Thank you so much for uh, talking with me and having me on today. All right. God bless you. Uh, I'm just so uh, enamored that we, we have so many wonderful guests that, that, uh, that are deep in their spirituality and their connection to God. And I, and I, I I'm grateful to God for that. Uh, but our time has ended for this particular session of food for thought. And, uh, and I thank you for your patience with all of the technology problems that we had, but let's end our time with prayer. This is the uh, prayer that we usually say at the end of uh, food for thought, the Lord be with you. Let us pray. Jesus Christ, you traveled to towns and villages, curing every disease and illness. At your command, the sick were made well. Come to our aid now in the midst of the global spread of the coronavirus. Heal those who are sick with the virus. May they regain their strength and health through quality, quality medical care. Heal us from our fear, which prevents nations from working together and neighbors from helping one another. Be present with those in authority who are making hard decisions. Support the medical professionals, emergency responders, counselors, and caregivers. We ask this all in your name, Jesus. Amen. Join with me in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. 
Amen. Friends, go in peace to love and serve God. Spread the light of Christ and the light of joy to the world around you. The world needs it right now. Thanks for watching. Did you know that you can join Christ Church from anywhere in the world? If you're feeling connected to what we're doing, email us today at communicate at Christchurchwesterly.org.